Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everybody, Kate here. We are back for another episode of The Drop-In. The Premier League season is almost over. But don't worry, the transfer window is soon going to be open and providing us with intrigue to last all summer. I don't know if you can hear the sprinklers on in the background, but we are on the road again. We're at Brentford's training ground and we're about to speak to a very important person in the Brentford setup. It's easy to feel like the defining story of the summer was Chelsea's spending spree and Nottingham Forest bringing in all of those players. But there are clubs in the Premier League working quietly and smartly behind the scenes clubs like Brighton and Brentford we'll be talking Brighton for next week's drop-in but today we are here at Brentford to speak to one of the most important people at the club their technical director Lee Dykes now if you don't know what exactly that job means we're about to find out and if you cannot believe how successful Brentford have been in recent seasons you're about to find out how that's happened Lee has got experience working in all four professional divisions in England and he's very much the type of behind-the-scenes character we very rarely hear from. But you're going to find out exactly why he's valued so highly at Brentford and why we were so excited to get him onto the drop-in. We thought you lot would love to hear from him. So here it is, the drop-in with Lee Dykes. Lee Dykes, thank you so much for joining us. It's absolutely brilliant to have you on the drop-in. We were speaking to people before talking to you about about you and about your job, technical director, and lots of people said you're one of the most important people at the club, but obviously lots of football fans wouldn't know all that much about what you get up to. Can you just quite simply help us understand what that means? Yeah, I think... um five, six, maybe even only three years ago, the technical director, sporting director uh, job title didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, but now every Premier League club will have one or even two. Uh, in our case, it's two. Uh, Phil Giles is sporting director. He is or director of football, his official title. Uh, he is the the boss of the football, if you like. Uh, and my role fits into, into him. So I deal with all the technical aspects of the long-term planning for the football club. So where Thomas Frank will be day-to-day, results-orientated, helping us finish above ninth in the Premier League and getting all of them accolades. Uh, My role is to support Thomas um, and work closely with Phil and Matthew, the owner, uh, about the long-term plan and making sure that every decision we make on a daily basis is in tune with what we want to achieve over the longer term. Because one day, you know, Thomas will move on. I'm pretty sure that'll be to a a big superpower club and we've got to make sure that all of the decisions are not then going to be out of date by that point and the new person that comes in obviously will be in a really good place. So you're kind of like the scaffolding around that central point? Yeah, scaffolding, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't describe it as. I think there's a sexier word than that. Maybe. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, maybe well, we'll, go, we'll go with the me and Phil, maybe the architects of the, of yeah, the, of the okay. club. Yeah, okay. I suppose I'm, the impression I was getting though is that maybe it's more something more permanent than scaffolding. You're trying to be... You're trying to build around Thomas, but also in such a way that yeah. nothing falls down once. Yeah, of course. And I think in the modern game of football, you need some real um, key executive people to be at the club longer than the average tenure of a manager mm. uh, to maintain success. And, you know, if you look at Brighton this year, we've lost Graham Potter and, and brought in Deserby. They're a a cool example of a club that have that support mechanism in place with David David Weir and Paul Barber. They they have them uh, structures in place so that the new manager can come in and they can take a next step with all of the good work that's gone on. With the sporting director role, the clubs that don't have it in place or the clubs that maybe don't use it as well as they should, um, too many decisions are made by the short-term uh, 
approach at the club. Usually the manager, maybe 10 players that he wants to sign are not 10 players that the next manager wants to use. And then there's a cost that gets associated to the club and everything becomes a little bit disgruntled. So we, we try and keep together uh, the longevity plan of the club. Um, Thomas obviously wants things that will impact now and we manage that. We've, we have a really good relationship, myself and Thomas. But Thomas is pretty cool, he's open-minded as well and he understands that it's not just about what Thomas Frank needs now, it's about what Brentford need to do to make the right steps towards hopefully a European place in the future. Do you think that's a mistake that a lot of clubs are making at the moment? I think you can try and move forward too quickly. Uh, and again, part of my role is to uh, recruit players. So recruitment's a big aspect of my role. Player pathways for our younger players into the first team. Uh, dealing with the loan procedures. So if the players are not impacting the first team now, but they've gone past the B team, we have a we have lots of players that will go out on loan and find their way, hopefully back towards the B, uh, the first team. Um, but recruiting the right players into the philosophy of the club. You know, Thomas has what he wants and the club has what, what, what they want. And we've collided that and we've come up with some key uh, criteria points that we try and hit every time we recruit a player or a staff member. I definitely want to hear more about the guy you've got doing some of medical and logistics. He's very interesting, but we'll come on to him in a, in a little bit. That's that's interesting. And also, okay, so you started off doing, you were head of, head of, in charge of recruitment, weren't you, when mm. you joined in 2019. Yeah. So that's... That's the thing that you're really your real core skills. Do you feel like? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I think I've been 17 years in the game now. Uh, may, the majority of that has been in recruitment. When I joined the club in 2019, they appointed me as head of recruitment. Um, but it was a very it was a championship club then. Uh, there was not as many employees as we have now. Even just three years later, uh, or four years later, actually. Mm. Um, so. When you come into a club like Brentford, that's your title, that's your role. Yeah. But you obviously partake in lots of different things. And it was a very flat structure. That's one of the things I liked about the club. And then very quickly, I, ha I, I went on to do the recruitment for the sister club as well, FC Micheland, owned by Matthew Benham. And then last summer when an opportunity came up, I became a technical director. But recruitment... Phil Giles made it abundantly clear to me when he <laughs> when he gave me the technical director role was we still want you you know to be largely based around player recruitment and staff recruitment because that was when Rasmus Ankerson left wasn't it when that you got that promotion yeah, yeah so Rasmus left in the December um, yeah. and he sort of saw six months out at, the, at both clubs and that's when obviously I stepped into the technical director role awesome. and at, at which point Phil sort of because Rasmus was co-director of football with Phil yeah so Phil sort of restructured a little bit, brought a technical director on. Yeah. Um, obviously, Thomas is the head coach. And we also appointed a guy called Ben Ryan, who's director of elite performance. And he's training ground, logistics, He's uh, the medical. rugby guy that I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We, I call him the rugby guy as well, actually. <laughs> Being a rugby guy myself. But he's, uh, he's all, yeah. So he does the medical, the physical performance, the training ground, the logistics, the marginal gain moments from that perspective and I'm more technical recruitment player pathway working closely with Thomas uh, telling Thomas what he's done wrong when he loses and, uh, and and what he's done right when he wins of course uh, no joking <laughs> joking he, he wouldn't have that from me um, but yeah so that's that's kind of how it's split at the club and it's a very cool clear uh, opportunity to work in that space and really try and create marginal gain opportunities it sounds as though it fits together very nicely at Brentford and this all seems like a clear and logical jigsaw. Uh, how do you think it's come to be that you are a club that is working with seemingly quite few egos that might lead to what we've seen elsewhere? Mm. You can fill in the blanks or in conflicts and things like that. What do you think it is about Brentford that, that's meant that, that is the case? I think one of the, I always say the club's superpower is its structure and how it aligns its staff and people and players towards the future goal. So too many clubs that I've seen um, may have short-term success, but it will be short-term success because there's no, there's no other result that people focus on other than the match result. Whereas we're a little bit different. We look at performance 
probably greater than the results really. We look at the consistency, the performance levels, and each staff member will know their role in the plan for the club. So if you're if you work in the recruitment team and you are covering Central Europe, you'll have your key objectives that fall in line with the head of recruitment's targets and objectives and everything sort of gels into one. Mm. So if we've, you know, won three, four games on the bounce, but our performance indicators are low and we maybe not scored a set-piece goal or created a set-piece opportunity, there'll be questions raised about this is the strategy, this is what we should be doing, we need to get back on course. So if you imagine a, a line that everybody sort of comes towards at any point in the season no matter what the result. And I think that's the superpower of the club. Clubs can go and win 10 games in a row, but there may be underlying issues that are occurring that they're not recognising because they're winning games. And we're not that club. We we obviously stay level-headed when we win um, and level-headed when we lose. It sounds... This might sound like a bit of a ludicrous thing to say, but it sounds a lot more professional than some ways that it seems as though football clubs certainly have been run, but even are run today, right? You're talking about this in a way that you might talk about, a, you know, a small business, a medium-sized business, basically. Yeah. And I know, actually, what do you think of the fact that sometimes football fans get to be a bit like, oh, you know, that's sucking the life out of football or whatever. What do you think about that? I think running the football club as a business is a, it's a business, right? Especially in the Premier League, it's a multi-million pound business. Mm. And... The people that work for that organisation, you have a duty of care to. You need Everybody needs to know how they're going to develop. Everybody needs to know how they're going to be rewarded. Everybody needs to know where the next step is. Um, but everybody needs to know that they're going to be challenged. Um, and if, if they are rewarded, it's because they've done something not just for themselves, but with the big picture in mind. Mm. Um, so situations that I found really strange when I came into the club, but things that really help us is free, every three months an employee will have a catch-up with their line manager and they'll talk about their season or annual objectives as an example of something that you wouldn't normally find in a football club, especially not in a football department, but constantly they know, sub, subconsciously they know that every three months they're going to be sat in a chair yeah. and they're going to be discussing what they should be doing against what they are, actually are doing. So everybody is pushing towards the one goal. And sometimes it's not going right. Sometimes yeah. you've set a strategy or you've set a target and it, and it becomes a little bit unrealistic for whatever reason. Maybe you've had a big injury. Um, maybe you've had a player that's going to be like we have, which is going to be suspended for a period of time. And you can adjust and we're dynamic enough to adjust. But So you're talking about reacting to circumstances that you might have not seen coming and you're referencing, I assume, the situation with Ivan Tony being yeah. out to mid-January, which is less than ideal. Um, would you look to go into the... I mean, how do you how do you replace a player like him? Well, Especially on yeah, short notice. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's been set. Um, I'll refrain from commenting on that. Uh, it's done. He's he's back in January, back in the building in September, which is great. Um, we'll support Ivan in that. Um, but again, the strategy is that we need a certain number of players up the top of the pitch. We'll look at the transfer market. Is there an opportunity to go and get a player that can be part of the plan with Ivan because we want Ivan back and he's part of the long-term thinking of the club. Um, so we'll look at all available opportunities in the transfer market. Um, but it's great that we've played, I think it's four games this season without Ivan and scored 10 goals. So there's a good audition there for people like Johan Wisser, Kevin Shardy, Brian Mbwemo, yeah. Keen Lewis Potter when he was fit. I always say to Thomas, and he, and he always says it back, we've got to remember... We've got very good players all over the club yeah. in the B team who've just won the Premier League Cup. So, you know, we're in a good place to to um, go into the Premier League season without Ivan for a period, but we'll we'll be delighted when he's back in the building. Oh, that's sharp for Brian and Bomo. And that's sharp as well, the pass. And yes for Brentford! The Brentford, Ivan Tony. You can see it's onside. And that is absolutely fantastic from even Tony. This guy's not just a target man, he's a class act, he really is. Yeah, so can you see, do you see it then sometimes as a, a challenge or something you wouldn't choose 
I'm thinking about my own club, Tottenham, um, having someone who's such an outright star player like Harry Kane, how do you? How would you encourage someone to come and play back up to him or something like that? Is it having that flatter situation is actually a benefit? Is what you're saying? Yeah, I think I think squad planning in general. So in 2019, we focused heavily on not just our youth uh, players or our young first team player acquisitions. You know, we signed Brian and Wemo in my first summer here, who's oh, done fantastic. Good work. Well. Sorry, for, sorry for mentioning him. <laughs> <laughs> Two great finishes yeah, and an assist. He did well, yeah. Um, but we signed again, going back to taking people at the right time. Yeah. If we'd have delayed that process by a year, it'd have probably been ungettable for for Brentford, who was then in the Championship. So for somebody like Harry Kane and Tottenham, obviously, take the players at the right time that can be that player in the future is always our here at Brentford our thought process. So if there's an opportunity on the market to take the next Ivan Tony, that might be two, three years away. Maybe we'll look at that because that could align with a plan with Ivan because I dare say if he scores another 20 Premier League goals, there might be some takers for him. Yeah, well, I remember when he moved up the leagues, he was on about being the top scorer in every division he's been in. So there's yeah. a challenge for him. Yeah, he's a, he's a confident guy. Um, somebody that we knew, we just knew he would be a, a top talent. Um, um Again, going back to time, and I think we was in a good position to take him with the time. And at the, uh, when we when we recruited him, we just missed out on promotion to the Premier League. We just sold Ollie Watkins to Aston Villa, um, and we needed the next number nine. And uh, timing was good for us. And unfortunately for for other clubs in the Premier League, they they didn't sign him. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Why not? Uh, that's you've, it. Seems the core of it then that you're talking about is trying to get players before other people become aware of them that is the crux of, of scouting is to try and get the players before anyone else knows about them right it so, helps it that, helps it's how difficult. the bloody hell are you doing that well, well <laughs> not just us there's other clubs around the world that do it very well um of course but yeah i mean we know that if we if we wait two more months or another transfer window we're going to struggle to compete financially with with clubs that will then know about that player. Mm. We recruited Kevin Chardé recently in January. We actually wanted him in the summer, but he had an injury at the time. And we knew if it had gone on another transfer window, no there, was, there was no chance of us getting that deal completed. Uh, obviously, a month after we signed him, he gets called into the German national team, plays yeah. for the German national team. So we know that timing is everything. And... We track young players all over the world. We cover 85,500 players worldwide and we're designed as a recruitment department. 85 and a half, say that again, 85 and a half? No. Yeah, 85 and a half thousand players worldwide. Right. Okay. Um, and we try and get that from there to serious player of interest as quickly as possible. And I think we do it very well. Us and many other clubs will do it very well. But then what we're really good at myself, Phil, Thomas, the coaches, everybody who makes a decision as part of that process is getting to the point where we say, let's sign this player. Right. We need to get there really quickly. And I think because we've got such an open environment and a clear decision-making process all the way to the very top, to Matthew Benham, then I think we can we can still find those gems in the market. But it's becoming dif more difficult being a Premier League club. Um, it was a lot easier when you were a championship club but when you're a Premier League club, go, go into another club to try and acquire a player. There's obviously Premier League, um, I won't call it premium, yeah. but clubs do see a Premier League club coming to acquire one of their players as yeah. opposed to a championship club. And the eyes light up with the dollar signs like in a cartoon. They do. Yeah, and I think um, you've been called in the past, people got very excited about what you were managing to do and called you you know, like a money ball club. And this, mm. is, a, this is a term that it seems like you've been not necessarily wanting to promote over recent seasons. That's the Moneyball thing is, of course, about those players, finding players who, it's from, was it baseball originally, wasn't it? The like, yes. one that looks a bit crocked yeah. and has yeah. got a slightly wonky ankle or whatever, but can actually like pitch faster than anybody else. I think Moneyball, whatever you want to call it, it's using data and numbers cleverly to filter the process quickly. And obviously we want to work quickly. So that aligns with our strategy to find players and people. So if you if you can take 85,500 as a number, the players we cover, down to 2,000 by cleverly placing numbers and, and using data, then you're going to do that an awful lot quicker than you are sending all them scouts out to watch all them games. Yeah. 
Um, so, and you back that process. If you can align them numbers to the criteria that you're trying to find for, for Thomas and the club, then you're in business. And that's where we find ourselves. Um, but then you've got to conclude it. And then you've got, there's, there's a point where you've used the numbers. Now it's about expertise. Now it's about the eyes of the operation. The coach is looking at it. Everybody getting bought in. And when a player comes into Brentford, lots and lots of people need to agree for that player to come in. So it's a thorough process. It's a quick process. But by the time that player enters the building, then everybody is bought into the fact that we need to make this player right. work. We need to make this player better. Got it. Okay, so it's not just like Thomas says, do it, and, and then you have a big fight and you do it anyway. No, he just tried to do that lots of times, Thomas. Like, yeah, let's do this player, let's do this player. But... That's okay because he has to. He has to be pushing, right? He, yeah, he has to. I mean, if he knows a player from from Scandinavia or from one of his connections, and he's worked with that player, which was the case with Christian Norgard, then you got to listen to that. You can't ignore that just because you've got a process. It just goes into the process, and then you might say, "Well, Thomas, you've got that one player. We've got these three players. Let's let's get everybody's eyes on them, and you know, let's sign the right player." Usually, Thomas's. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramble. So you're talking about going down to your, your 2000, I think it was, we were getting down from your from your mass down to the 2000. So that's with with stats and figuring out the profiles. Mm-hmm. At what point does personality traits and, and characteristics, How when do you start and how do you start figuring that out before they then... As a, yeah, as a rule, there's sort of seven stages of recruitment. So the first four stages are... The first phase is certainly data, and then the second and third stages are you'll start to attach the eyes and combine it with the data, and then the fourth stage is is more um, me working with the coaches with the with the short short list of players, and really drilling down on the serious players of interest, and then six seven is more me Thomas and Phil evaluating where the squad is and where the opportunities are from the options that we've looked at. And then at the end point, it'll be myself and Phil's responsibility to try and obviously seal the signings. Uh, Phil will decide whether he wants to do it or he wants me to do an element of it. So they're the sort of seven stages of, of recruitment. But I would say from maybe five to seven, once we've got the coaches involved and once we're seriously considering a player, um, we'll know about the player because that'll be just natural information that comes through the process, even in the first four stages. But we'll then turn up the heat a little bit on gathering serious intelligence on the players. So when we signed Vitali Anil, mm. I always tell this story because it was cracking. Um, I was sat with him in the hotel uh, before he signed. It was the window it, that was struck by COVID. It actually ended in October, the transfer window. Yeah. Um, and I told him where he used to eat at his restaurant with his with his girlfriend and what they used to order. 
<laughs> and his face went, <laughs> what do you mean? How do you know? How, how do you know that? Well, I spoke to the restaurant manager about you. I know, I know how you react when the food comes out wrong and these kind of things. Oh, my God, so, really? So, so when you're spending big money, yeah. you have to know things about players. That they're not a prick. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> They're, well, Thomas says, no dickheads. No dickheads. <laughs> wow, that's actually very similar. We spoke to Owen Eastwood a while back, the guy who worked with the English FA, yeah. about trying to do some like work on the culture and things like that. And then that came from the All Blacks yeah. team as well, the no yeah. dickheads. Yeah. It's massively important to us because you know, football is a culture where neg- negative influences um, will impact a bigger group of people there's a, there's a saying that that so I I flow by which is negativity can court company, so you've got yes. to you got to have a real honest humble group of people in your organisation, but certainly in the football team in the in the changing room, you've got to have people that there's going to be disappointments, but they react in a certain way, and that's what we look for. Can they can they take disappointment? Can they show disappointment in the right way, and still contribute to the group? I guess that's also a key point for you in your job as having, you've got to have a lot of self-confidence. It's not dissimilar to some of the players. You have to have a lot of self-confidence. Yeah. But then when you make a mistake or whatever we want to call it, come across a challenge, uh, if we're doing sort of management speak, you have to kind of learn from it and, and just move on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, I've, I've had various, com- my role is to have conversations with the players, sometimes really early, and to get them bought into the potential plan at the club. That's that's one of my roles. It always has been my role at the club. Um, sometimes you have them conversations and you're 100% flying, confident, a bit like Brian and Buemo at the weekend against your team. Um, but sometimes, you you know, you're not 100%. That's just natural. I'm a person. Yeah. And, and you look back and you, as long as you're uh, aware of that and you can figure out why that is, then you'll do better next time. Uh, we don't always sign the players we're going for. Maybe that's portrayed by... Maybe I've made a mistake there, the way I've portrayed the client. Who knows? Nobody tells you. But I think you always got to self-evaluate as an individual, your process, your department, and figure out how you can step forward and do better. And that comes very simply from all of the individuals in the organisation figuring out where they want to get to, where they want to be eventually, and what that personal development looks like. So you're trying to control... Again, not to tie it too closely to the idea of being a footballer, but you're also trying to control like emotional factors. Sounds like yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, we we are affected by emotions. Yeah, of course. Uh, I remember the drive home when we lost to Fulham in that playoff final. It wasn't very, it wasn't very nice. But do you know what? Great story. Lose lose to uh, Fulham in the playoff final. Um, had a cracking team. We'd have, we'd have graced the Premier League with that team, certainly that front three. Uh, and five minutes after the final, we'd already set the strategy for the next season. Five minutes. Five minutes. How? How? In 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 the Wembley suite, Matthew Benham, Rasmus Anksen, Phil Giles, myself, we'd already decided where we was going to go, uh, and it was uh, mainly around Ivan Tony. Brilliant. Okay, so now we get to it: the transfer window. Presumably, lots of people ask you about this, and this on the subject of emotion. A lot of it must be. Because you can't be doing mad deadline day signings because that's not efficient. A lot of it must be quite hard to kind of hold the line when you see all these people making these big decisions and and acting and talking on the phone and whatever the tick is going on Sky Sports News. How do you manage all that? Yeah, I mean it's crazy the the transfer window because I've been at many clubs. I've worked at all the you know throughout the divisions in England. Uh, League Two, League One, Championship, now Premier League. And even the more successful transfer windows, so let's say you do your business early, yeah, you kind of get to the end of the transfer window and you see all the transfers happening you're thinking, should we do another? Like, well, do we need to yeah. do another one? We hadn't done, we hadn't done one for two weeks. Like, <laughs> let's do another one. And it is, it does draw you into that. Um, but again, that's where we've got to, just got to remain level-headed about... What was the objective coming into the transfer window? Well, that was to sign four players, each in that position, uh, and maybe take two out of the squad and send them on loan. So if you've achieved the objective, you cannot emotionally get drawn into, there's three weeks left, Let's. oh, there's an opportunity here, oh, we can afford it. 
because it could be the wrong decision and we just need to that's again the club superpower is if it doesn't make sense we ain't doing it you must so you obviously feel it the 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 carnage of it of course i do yeah, yeah. i still watch sky sports news i still <laughs> i still listen to the talk sport radio coming in i still i'm i'm a fan of the game i always have been uh, and you do like there'll be players that get signed and i look and i go oh, i've said no to him <laughs> i hope this don't but you know, different football clubs, different environments mean different players will work in different situations. Um, and I think there was, I think it was January, we'd really early signed Kevin Scheider for a, uh, a what would be a, a club record transfer. And then in that month, I think there was 12 players that we seriously considered came into the Premier League. Oof. So that was a period where I was a bit... Okay, this is interesting because we've said this or that about these players. How are these going to do? Uh, should we have done more? And and it does test you mentally and in, and your emotions become a part of it. Of course they do. Like, you, you, that's just natural. But again, strategy was um, what it was. We acquired the player. We was done. We was happy. We never shut shop if the opportunity is there. And maybe we can accelerate a summer transfer in the January window or, you know, uh, January transfer in the summer window. Then if we can afford that or it makes sense, then we'll maybe look at that. But we'll never go and say, oh, well, you know, we've had an injury, so we're going to recruit a player for on a four-year contract for the case of six months. We'll never do that. We'd rather play a younger player. And again, just reassuring that the strategy from the owner is negative things are going to happen to the team. We just need to back ourselves with our plan. The transfer window closing and the Premier League setting a record, spending £1.9 billion, pounds, shattering what was the most spent in a summer transfer window back in 2017. They've spent more than La Liga Serie A and the Bundesliga combined. The biggest spenders were Chelsea, followed by Manchester United and Nottingham Forest signed more players in a single summer than any other British club ever with 21. Let's welcome in Julian Laurent to talk more about this. Jules, is this good for the sport? The summer transfer window last, just gone, was the most spent in a transfer window ever. And if you think about how recently we had COVID and, and clubs in crisis all the way up and down the league, the mm. pyramids... What, what do you make of that? What does, yeah, what do you uh, make of that? Well, being truthfully honest, before I came to Brentford, the most I'd spent on a player was 50k. Cool. Come to Brentford and yeah. it's millions and millions and millions. But I don't really get drawn into the number. It's about the value of each individual case. Um, I do think there is a lot of that in football where, you know, there's no official set valuation of anything. It's about what somebody wants to pay and what somebody wants to sell for. Mm. Um, sometimes or a lot of the time it's unrealistic and, you know, people try and get what they can in football. So if if Chelsea have already spent an element of money in a transfer window and they want to spend more, then chances are they're going to have to pay more because they've already demonstrated a way of working. Uh, whereas ourselves, people will generally know that if we come to the table, we we will arguably pull out of a situation if we don't if we no longer see value in that transaction so it's a bit it's gone a bit through the roof uh i think that because of the covid times i think there was just a relief that fans were back in the stadium football was back again and i think everybody was very excited and wanted to demonstrate that covid's gone and it's no longer an issue and let's get back to business uh coupled with some ownership changes um, and and a couple of clubs in the Premier League specifically went above and beyond in the spend. So I expect it to calm down a little bit. Okay. But then with the agent regulation changes coming into force later this year, maybe a few uh, representatives are, are interested in doing deals. So Chelsea have created a rod for their own back, basically, from that analysis. I think they have because, you know, I always remember the transfer window when uh, Maguire was rumoured to go for £80 million. Um, and then a championship player went for 40 million <laughs> or, or went to the championship for, uh, to the Premier League 40 million and then the next one down went for 20 million the next one down I think we sold for one for 12 million 
So the market sets itself. So if you go and spend 110 million on a on a central midfield player, then the market will set itself. And if you've got a central midfield player, you're taking a marker off that valuation and you're going, well, all right, he's maybe three years older. He's not won a World Cup, but he's played an element, you know, X amount of Premier League games. He's an international player. So he must be worth that. Mm. Whereas if that transfer didn't happen, you'd probably set a marker off the next transfer. So transfer windows are interesting always for that reason. And you're always that's why people wait for the first deal to go through because then oh yeah we you know we're we're doing right by the valuation. So that makes sense a bit of what happens sometimes at the very end of the window. Is yes. that people some people have been hanging around. Yeah. And or the other side of the coin is people wait, maybe know they, they know the club really needs to sell this play and they'll wait until the last moment to try and get the deal done. And then that's why you get the yellow tie and uh, all the all the atmosphere on on deadline day. No longer with the yellow tie. <laughs> no, no of longer. course not. Yeah. Um, but the the valuation thing you're saying as well on the Chelsea have created a rod for their own back. They've also created a rod for everybody else's back. Then, yeah, the 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 kind of have for direct competitors of Chelsea. I mean, with all due respect, I know we're higher in the division at the moment, but uh, we are still Brentford in the Premier League. We will acquire slightly different um, profiles than they will. Uh, but yeah, they kind of have. They've set the marker. So the next time they're going for a central midfield player that's done well in the World Cup, they might have to pay uh, a handsome sum of money like they just have. So you're saying you're not shopping in the same... You can't? I don't think we are, no. I don't think we can... We Well, I know we can't pay the transfer fees that they can pay. And I know we're nowhere near on the, on the wages and salaries either, which is fine because our market is acquiring the players that we can sell to Chelsea one day. And... Tottenham's and Manchester United's and Arsenal's and Liverpool's and Manchester City's. That's our market now. So we're okay with that. So the term selling club is like a badge of honour here? Yeah, but I think we hold on to our players for longer. Um, so if you if you look at some players that got promoted into the Premier League with us out of the Championship, if we didn't get promoted, the same would have happened again like it did with Saeed Ben Rama. We didn't get promoted. He went to West Ham. Ollie Watkins went to Aston Villa. Um, you know, if we didn't get promoted uh, that season when Ivan Tony was the record championship goal scorer, then he would have gone to the Premier League, would have lost him. But because we're still stepping in the right direction, we obviously can keep our players for longer. And our ambitions are aligned with our players, um, but there will come a time where super big clubs will come and put money on the table and, and maybe it's right for everybody for a player to move on. Mm. Not a selling club as such. I don't want to put that out there. But we will listen to offers for everybody, including myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing as that's very interesting about all of this is in the context of where Brentford have been over the last seasons, i.e. Matthew Benham coming in, taking over from the Supporters Trust um, and, and trying to create something that, from the outside at least, and I think consciously, has been pretty collaborative or perhaps more collaborative mm. within the team. Yeah than most other Premier League clubs. Mm. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Matthew, Matthew is a, uh, he's a genius. Um, the, the, the biggest compliment I can give to Matthew is when he first came into the club, there was a lot of people thinking, how is this going to work? Like, how is this data-driven approach going to work? They associated it with recruitment only. It's not. Like, we have we have performance measures in place that is, that is data as well. Uh and I remember coming in 2019 and I, and I didn't identify it early, but we were losing games and the fans were posting the expected goal result. So we would lose a game and the fans would take the positive out of it. Whoa. And that is absolutely mental <laughs> in in football culture in England that fans would instantly change their mindset and go, yeah, but we won that game on ex- expected goals. <laughs> And that's what he's done to the club. He's, They're he's getting said, picked look. on in the playground, though, yeah. surely. <laughs> well, maybe. But they've said, look, you know, there's an underlying measurement here, and if we consistently go through through that process, we'll win more games than we lose. Do you think it's a misunderstanding in English football, particularly, that everyone hears exclusively, pretty much, from the manager? Do you think, given that clearly, it's a, especially here, it's a, it's a team event in terms of the management team and the different elements that you provide, mm. do you think conversation could be around the game could be improved if 
for example, you turned up occasionally to a press conference or or whoever. Well, so, I'd I'd hate that, and I don't think <laughs> I don't think people would be delighted listening to my accent every other week. Oh come but, on! But um, <laughs> but no, I think the football culture dictates that the profile of the person that all the fans want to listen to and and hear the thoughts of is the manager. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be that uh, way for some time yet. But if you look on the continent, specifically in Italy, exactly. um, sometimes in Spain uh, and in Germany, you you have the sporting director sometimes doing the pre-match briefing or we actually do it. Phil does the sort of post-transfer uh, window explanation. Uh, he started doing that because we were selling players a lot and the fans wanted to know why. And he was like, well, because we've signed this player as well and he's going to be the next star. Um, so the communication, I think, actually could improve. I think if you if you look on Brentford's channels at the moment, they're doing lots of work around, you know, this is our head of football operations, this is our uh, head of commercial, this is our. There's lots and lots of people that make uh, the match day happen. Um, so I think they're trying to embrace that culture a little bit. But as a rule around the game, yeah, I'm a big believer that it could improve. Actually, I'll put that out there. Whether it will be accepted or not is a different thing. Um, but I also think from manager, more so when it's going wrong, there should be something, somebody explaining maybe the context around that. Yeah. So it might just not be, you know, if you if you take Thomas as an example, it might not be a situation around anything other than, you know, the transfer-related activity in the previous window. So I think there has to be some improvement in that area, and I'd back that. Managers would have to be on board with that. Fans would have to be on board with that. But you only find out the reactions if you actually do it, right? So let's let's maybe see that one day. This is your idea. You're going to get blamed for it as well. This is your idea. <laughs> Surely the managers would be pleased to, <laughs> to not have to do some of these relentless press conferences. Well, every manager I speak to, I just like, there's so much to do. There's yeah. so much to do. And I think sometimes taking them away from that exposure... We'll, we'll just, you know, keep settle them down, allow them to do the job um, or just assist them in that process whereby there's a different voice that is not speaking about the game, is not talking about the tactics, not talking about the selection, but he's talking about or she's talking about the plans in the next transfer window or why um, you've acquired this kind of player or why you're playing this, this sort of way in terms of the philosophy of the club, uh, why you have a set-piece coach, what, I think all this could doesn't have to be every every week, but it could be a maybe something we we could put in place, and um, then Thomas can rollick him for saying the wrong thing, and then that'd stop abruptly. That could be a downside, yeah. I hadn't thought yeah. About. Wouldn't advise putting the head of medical in front of the camera. That could be a problem. Oh yeah, the head, is that no? Is so Ben Ryan said we would talk about him. Yeah. So he's the guy who's come from rugby union, yeah. and he does kind of logistical and medicine stuff. So this is a. A uh, real example of you guys looking outside of just the the obvious yeah. people. What yeah. does he bring? So so he brings a lot of experience away from football, which I think is really super cool because he's he's obviously had experience in various sports, not just rugby. Uh, and I think our a, a real push from Brentford is to find out where the marginal gains are. So I always remember when he first came in, he spoke about uh, the weight of the shirt when it was wet. So when it was raining or when it was full of sweat, the weight of the shirt was was probably more than what it should have been. So that is something that you don't think of. I would have never even thought about looking into that. But is that a marginal gain? Would that have restricted a player running it? I don't know. I don't know the answer, but it's that's what Ben is all about. And he's looking at like you know travel, how we travel to games, thinking about the carbon footprint, thinking about, you know, um, the foods we're eating, what times. And you can only change or or develop that if you have a research model that gives you ideas. So we speak to, me and Ben actually speak to different sports. So maybe New York Giants as an example, or we'll speak to people from cricket and tennis. And if there's something we can feel we can transfer into our operations, even if it's just a trial, and see if it works or not, then and it doesn't cause too much disruption, then we're open to 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 finding that out. So Ben is more around that sort of thing and and assisting with the medical and the physical performance development of the operations, training ground logistics, making sure the pitches are up to scratch. Um, that's Ben's role, and he's doing a very good job. 
Nice. I mean, that sweaty shirt thing does make sense, actually, on, in retrospect, doesn't it? If you consider that cyclists are shaving their legs, for example, in order to counteract, you know, drag. So it's the, yeah. these tiny things that you're working on. Yeah, I remember, I think it was Andre Agassi who, who shaved every area he could um, to be lighter um, without going into detail. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that is that a marginal gain? If there's a marginal gain out there and it's an opportunity for us to enforce it in our operations, we have to look at it because we can't outspend. We don't want to outspend our competitors. We want to outthink them, and that's where that methodology comes from. And Ben's always looking at opportunities. I went into his office the other day, and he had this weird light above his uh, above his desk, and it, and it was sort of light beaming down onto him. And I, and I said, what's this all about? Like, Are we all getting one of these? He went, no, I'm trialling it. He said, it's supposed to give you a little bit more energy in the day. He said, but it hasn't yet. <laughs> so so it doesn't always work, but he's he's consistently um he's consistently trying to find that 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 hidden uh, gem for us to develop our process. Last couple of bits um that are really interesting to me, I think. You mentioned Europe from the perspective more about your of scouting and finding people. Um but in the context of what we talked about in the transfer window with sustainability and the way that Premier League are just generally outspending mm. everybody by ludicrous factors. What what impact do you think that's that that's going to have on the kind of balance of of European competition over the next, well, immediately really? I don't know because I mean you would say that it's going to have a negative impact in my opinion because the Premier League is going to be going, so dominant. Yeah, it's going to become the superpower, um, and religiously we've always had Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, playing in either Italy or or, or Spain. Uh, Portuguese Ronaldo transferring from England to Real Madrid, Gareth Bale, Real Madrid, Lionel Messi in Barcelona for so long. Um, but obviously the transfers from England, and when I say transfers, I'm talking about could you see a situation now where um, Real Madrid come and sign Jack Grealish for 200, 250 million or... Foden or whoever it may be, no, because financially they can't cope with that. Could they sign Haaland in two, three years? Maybe I don't know. I don't know, but they will need to get back to that financial sustainability model where they can, they can, they're in a good place financially as a club, so they can go out and acquire the best talents from England as well as other areas of Europe and the world, because that's what they used to do for years, right? They used to get the best. They called it Galacticos and the superpowers of football into their league from a La Liga perspective. And then in the 90s, it was more Serie A. It's, it's our moment. It's the Premier League's moment. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to have a negative Im impact over the longer term for competition in Europe. It can only be good for the Premier League because we'll acquire the best talent, in my opinion. Will it impact young English homegrown players? I hope not, because I think we should be able to enforce enough rulings to to make sure and we're trying to to make sure that the young players come through. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the European clubs have got a long way to go to recover. I know Germany as a an example from COVID really got hit financially, um, so it'll need to it'll need to develop financially in Europe to for them to sort of wrestle back that control. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing I was interested about was that you said um, somewhere else, maybe in the Athletic, about Thomas Frank having a ten percent darker side, or yeah. that you think it's valuable to have a ten percent darker side. I want to hear more about that. Is that something you feel like you have? Is that something you deploy? Is that something you dip into? How does that work? Yeah, I think when you, if I'm if I'm looking at a football player, yeah, do they have that grit? Do they have that determination? Can they? Can they, you know, show that on the pitch in the right way? Uh, Thomas is one of the nicest guys I've ever met in football, but he's got a little bit of a dark side, and when he needs to, he'll turn it up. Um, as to what I have as well, and our in, our conversations are always interesting when we're both turning on the ten percent dark side. <laughs> uh, we have we have a two minute spat and then recover and and go back with a plan. But um, yeah, Thomas has got that. It mainly comes from his drive. Um, yeah. And because he's such a nice guy all the time, people will actually re react in a positive way to that dark side. So if he needs to go in and remind people that they're not performing at their levels in on a game or in training, he'll do so. If he needs to remind a, a coaching staff member or a member of his of his football department that 
they haven't been at the level on a particular day or a particular week or for for a period then he'll do that and he won't think twice about doing that and yeah his competition comes out of him um a lot at times and there's certain times you just don't want to speak to him <laughs> for matches it's relatively important that you don't make one two three or four mistakes that's leading to goals so obviously the two huge build-up mistakes that's like you know huge plus uh, an own goal plus a uh, well-drilled set-piece goal but we knew exactly what they did so we should just follow the man that's simple we didn't so if you make four mistakes then you lose formers um, then you lose football games and eight basically that's it well, on that note, thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to us because that was absolutely fascinating and, yeah, could have gone on much longer. But we need to uh, get you back to your WhatsApps because I, I do. tend to think of I the do. state of them. I know, my phone's going to blow up. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, very hot room, this, by the way. Yeah, we're Not, in the boot room, guys. Yeah, it's, yeah we're, uh, we're, we're in a very hot room, so we'll be going outside to get a bit of breath, uh, fresh air. But excellent. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Not at all. It. Speak to you soon. I absolutely love that. I feel as though I've now started on my journey as a as a scout in future. The seven phases of recruitment thought that was really interesting. And also just the idea around how football clubs last so much longer than their players and their manager. We'll be back next week with an interview from someone at Brighton who's going to give us even more behind-the-scenes stories about how these clubs have done so well. You don't want to miss that. Tell us what you thought of today. Get in touch at Football Ramble at KVL Mason. So we'll be back next week. See you then. Take care. The Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 